We need institutions that can, with legitimacy, make claims as to what is a fair election and, and what isn't. With the collapse of any kind of mainstream news, we don't have an authoritative way of affirming that, and I'd like to see us develop more of that. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans, drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm delighted to welcome Jeremy Surrey to the podcast. Uh, Jeremy is an old comrade from struggling graduate student days, so I can say that I knew him when. Uh, but he is now Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs and Professor of Public Affairs and History at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he has been at Texas, I think, since 2011, and prior to that, he spent a decade on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeff, for having me on your wonderful podcast. Uh, I appreciate you being here. And you are the author of 11 books on foreign policy and public affairs, and your most recent appears this month, which is to say October 2022, and it is titled Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Congratulations on this great new book. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Um, I should also add that you are a prolific contributor to the public discourse, uh, including not only your books, but your writings for virtually all of the media outlets that most people have ever heard of, and quite a few they haven't, uh, <laughs> multiple radio and TV appearances, um, and your weekly podcast, This is Democracy, which I myself have had the privilege of joining. Uh, and we hope to have you on again soon, Jeff. Well, thank you. Um, one of the more endearing features of that podcast is the weekly poem written and recited by your son, Zachary. How is he doing? He is doing very well. He's applying to colleges right now. He's a senior in high school, and he's struggling with trying to figure out uh, what the future of our country is going to be and how he can find a place for himself in it. That um, is a, a struggle that confronts a lot of young people nowadays, yes. I think. Yes. Um, Jeremy, uh, you actually had a quote uh, on your website, um, which I found quite interesting and appealing. Uh, you said, I am a child of the global transformations that remade societies in the last century, war, migration, nation building, and mobility through higher education. All of my research, writing, and teaching seeks to explain these transformations. And you go on to say that my scholarship is therefore an extended inquiry into the workings of power at local and international levels and the interactions across these levels. Uh, can you tell me something about your background and, and why this is the way that you have sort of framed your, your own writing and scholarship? <laughs> it's a great question. So my father is an immigrant from India. He came in 1965 uh, with the Immigration Reform Act of that time, came from an India that was going through some really, really difficult economic conditions that we could hardly imagine in the United States. And my mother is the child of Russian Jewish immigrants to the United States who fled pogroms in, in Russia. And and uh, that history has always been with me, Jeff, um, from the earliest memories that I have. Uh, I've been interested in trying to figure out what happened in those societies, why my parents came and met at Roseland Dance Hall in New York City. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's not only shaped who I am, it's shaped the ways I view the world, the ways I think about our country. Uh, the United States made my uh, family possible. It made the survival of my family possible. It made the, the wonderful life I live as a scholar wonderful and possible. And um, trying to explain how we've come to where we are, flaws and benefits, and how we go forward has, has always been central to my identity. 
Uh, I believe the Roseland uh, Ballroom has closed down now to many it, people's lamentations. It, it has indeed. Uh, and so now when I mention that story to students, they have no idea what I'm referring oh, to. Alas. So where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City. I went to public schools in New York City. I was fortunate enough to get admitted to one of the magnet public schools, Stuyvesant High School. And uh, my parents, working class people, they didn't have any money, but I, I was able to get a good education in New York. And I had some wonderful teachers. I had some horrible teachers, but I also had some wonderful teachers. And then I was fortunate to get a fellowship to go to Stanford University as an, as an undergraduate. Uh, I could not have gone if I didn't have uh, financial aid. Um, I happen to remember that you went to Stanford because you were kind enough to provide me with an introduction a long time ago to David Kennedy, who I think was one of your professors there. He was my advisor. I just had dinner with him recently. Uh, he's going strong in his early 80s. And uh, he taught me early on, uh, Jeff, that uh, serious history based on deep research can also be well-written for a broad public. I, I never considered being a historian who only writes for historians because my models, my uh, the figures that I've revered have always been those who did the most serious research, but always wrote for a broader audience. He's a great person and uh, a great historian, uh, and he definitely has taken that approach uh, himself. And, and you went to Ohio. Did you go there to study with John Gaddis? I did. So uh, when I was finishing my undergraduate work at Stanford, I happened to uh, get connected with John Gaddis, who at that point was a professor at Ohio University and also a visiting professor at Oxford. And I had a visiting uh, period at Oxford as well. And that's how we overlapped. And he invited me to Ohio University to see if this graduate school thing was something I wanted to do. And, and so I went and did my master's there. Okay. And then uh, on to Yale. That then I, I was following you, Jeff. That I had to I had to <laughs> connect, uh, and uh, like you, I had the the great fortune of getting to know uh, Gaddis Smith, and to work with Paul Kennedy and so many other luminary figures. Uh, but it wasn't that they were luminaries that made a difference for me. It was that they were people who believed history could change the world, uh, and again could be written for a larger audience. And and so uh, I was I was drawn to that, and, and and so shaped by some of the same people who shaped you and your fantastic writings. Oh, thank you. And and yeah, I remember those teachings with uh, John Lewis Gaddis and Paul Kennedy uh, very fondly. We had a great seminar with Paul Kennedy and Bruce Russet, where we yes. were comparing the. The historians and the political scientists' approaches to the world, um, which I still I still draw upon for a lot of my own work. And I think you and I, as much as we respect political scientists, I think it was obvious we knew which side of that we were on. <laughs> yes, uh, this is true. Uh, something about our own graduate work as well is that although we worked in very different fields, we were both studying the 1960s. Um, and the work you did on your dissertation, I believe, led to your first book, which is Power and Protest, Global Revolution and the Rise of Detente. You know, we were going to grad school at the time of the 90s culture wars. And to me, it was only natural to study the 1960s because that was where the seeds of those culture wars were planted. Um, and although I'm not much of a believer in cycles of history, um, one can't help but notice that there are 30-year cycles that sometimes recur in American history because the 1930s was a very politically active decade, as was the 1960s. The 1990s picked up where uh, the 1960s left off. And here we are in yet another culture war in 2022. 
I, I agree, and and I think you know your your podcast's namesake, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., of course, came up with this enduring concept of the vital center, and it was his father, right, who spoke of cycles of American history, and and I agree with you. That's a it's maybe a too rigid way to think about things, but we do have these patterns, and to me, what what you and I experienced in the 1990s in that culture war was a way in which the prior culture war of the 60s was being refought. And I feel like we're refighting. You've written about this, of course, so well. We are refighting those wars today. And, and that, that definitely inspired my first book, uh, Dissertation, Power, and Protests, uh, much of my other work. And to some extent, even this current book that goes back to the years after the Civil War, I think the point is that prior battles, they don't go away. They remain part of our, our, our scar tissue as we go forward. Yeah, and and very rarely are there complete victories, um, and some of these battles get refought, and uh, the understanding of the past gets relitigated. Exactly, that's why the stakes are so large. I mean, it seems like we're debating, you know, curriculum in high school. That's usually not something that's exciting for people, but the stakes are pretty large because it defines how we think about ourselves in the current moment. So, um, I'm sure these are subjects we'll come back to, but you know, given that you've studied. Uh, a lot of foreign affairs um, that, that your uh, Henry Kissinger, for example, has been one of the central figures in a lot of your scholarship. But then in any case, a lot of your work has focused on the 20th century. Why did you decide that you wanted to write about the Civil War and its aftermath? Because of the last six years. So just as I was drawn to the 60s as you were in the 1990s, uh, I was drawn to this period because of uh, what at first seemed to me to be uh, a smattering of resonances. And the more I looked into it, as any research project develops, it starts as an article and a thought piece and an idea. And the more I looked into it, the more parallels, the more resonances, the more connections I saw. Um, one of the things that became so clear to me was some of the rhetoric we see today is the rhetoric of the 1860s and 70s and 80s. It's from the opposite party. It's the Republican Party using the Democratic Party rhetoric of the 1870s, the arguments about fraud in elections how fraud is deployed as a weapon in uh, denying certain groups the right to vote, questioning results. Uh, this is vintage 1874, 1876, 1878. I agree, and I highly recommend your book. Like I said, not only is it beautifully written, but it's really thought-provoking. Uh, you know, I never was a student of the 19th century uh, in America, but I feel like I absorbed a lot of information about the Civil War just in the course of growing up and being an American. Um, it's something that we all seem to know something about. And of course, you know, I had family uh, trips to Civil War battlefields. And I, in fact, uh, think that one of the greatest American novels is Michael Shara's The Killer Angels, which yes. uh, focuses on the Battle of Gettysburg. Yes. You know, the Civil War, in some sense, is always with us, but it was still a little bit uh, uh, startling to read one of the first sentences in your book which is that worries about a new civil war in America are misplaced because the civil war, that is with capital letters, uh, never fully ended. Its lingering embers have burst into flames at various times, including our own. When did you come to feel that? About halfway through the research, I went in thinking uh, that there were, as I said, some, some references, uh, some connections. The original book proposal uh, was going to cover an, a number of other periods, and the more deeply I went into the research, I mean, this is what we do as historians. We immerse ourselves in the sources. Uh, the more it felt like we were refighting those issues and in a way that isn't new. 
Um, it's recontextualized. Uh, but I think fundamentally the question at the end of the Civil War with the end of slavery is how are 4 million former non-citizens now going to be integrated into our society in areas where their integration will give them enormous power by virtue of their presence. And I think at the center of our politics today is the same question. Uh, how are groups that have traditionally not been in power, that are grabbing, claiming, uh, making a case for power, how are they going to be integrated in our, in our society? And the battle lines look very similar. One side wants a more narrow definition of democracy. One side wants a wider definition of, of democracy. And that's where we are today. I should say um, for podcast listeners what this book is not. It is not a political science approach to the question of civil war and whether America is on the verge of civil war. That's something you leave to them. Right. And, and, and I think, honestly, it's a little silly to think that there's going to be another Antietam or Gettysburg. It, it's not that we're going to start another war. It's, again, that the elements, the conflicts from the past are becoming sharper, uh, but they haven't gone away. And you know, one of the figures with whom you lead off the book um, is uh, uh, this guy, I think his name is Kevin Seafried. Yes. who was one of the January 6th rioters uh, in the Capitol, who was very prominently photographed carrying a big Confederate flag. And it turned out that Kevin Seafried was there with his son uh, from Sussex County, Delaware, which uh, is a pretty rural agricultural area. He definitely was a, a sort of representative figure of a lot of the left behind parts of the country that voted for Trump. And, you know, him carrying that flag is on the one hand kind of, strange image because he's from Delaware, which was not a Confederate state. It was a slave state, but it did not uh, fight on the side of the Confederacy, although individual Delawareans did. You do mention that there's a chapter of the Sons of the Confederacy in that county called uh, the Delaware Grays, who've made a lot of news by putting up Confederate memorials uh, and the like. But nonetheless, the, the Confederate flag is kind of an image that people who have no connection whatsoever to the Confederacy have seized on as a way of giving the middle finger to what they see as the uh, the elite uh, in America. And, and that was certainly present at January 6th, but it cannot help but connect to the darker history of the United States and the Confederacy. A absolutely. And that's coupled, as, as you know uh, so well, Jeff, with other iconography and artifacts uh, from the Civil War era, most horrifyingly, uh, the construction of a gallows. Uh, on the lawn uh, in front of the Capitol. And we have an image of that in the book. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen that image. Uh, when I talked to my friends from Germany, I was just at a meeting, a delegation of German leaders in the United States. Uh, they don't understand this. They've dealt with their own, uh, even greater ghosts and horrors from their past, right? But the fact that people would, 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 would build like a model concentration camp somewhere and, and, as a political statement, even their farthest of right parties don't consider doing this. They, deny, they might deny that ever happened. Uh, but to valorize the idea of lynching and then to advocate the lynching of the Republican vice president, as they did on that day, uh, you can't help but think there is a direct and intentional connection to this earlier era. I was uh, struck by another sentence early on uh, in which you wrote, as I looked back at the history I had studied, I realized that I had underappreciated the longstanding domestic forces of destruction and exclusion. Alongside the growth and development of American democracy, the country had remained mired in unresolved debates about who should have power and who should not. 
and I think this connects to your work on the Republican Party, right? I mean, there was a time when the Republican Party, the 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 party of uh, Lindsay in New York and others, right, was a party that actually embraced perhaps a, the most inclusive vision. And I think, as you show, it's the desire for power, not some major um, utopian or dystopian vision. The desire for power that moves people in a very different direction. And and I think. That's that's what we've seen now, and these old experiences, these old tropes, these old paradigms, they become deployable weapons for those who are seeking, like a Newt Gingrich, to narrow the range of democracy and seize power, quite literally, for themselves. Yeah, what I like so much about your book is that um, although you do set up kind of a, a polemical framework in the first chapter, and you do conclude with some actual policy prescriptions, which is unusual and interesting for a work of history, what comes in between is a very detailed um, and pretty nuanced history of the two decades after Appomattox, um, where you don't hit the reader over the head with parallels to the present age, but these parallels cannot help but jump out because you know anyone who's paid attention to what's going on in the last six years, uh, as well as you know the Republican Party's transformation over the past several decades, will see these parallels very clearly. And although you also don't say this, it really seems that what you are doing is retelling an American tragedy. Yes, um, I, I feel that way, yes. Which is the failure of America to build upon the, the foundations that it laid down after the Civil War in some ways uh, that would have created a, a multiracial, much more equal American democracy. Absolutely. And and I think, by the way, that's a Burkean argument, if I might say so. It's not a radical argument at all. It's actually that there was new bedrock being laid, as you put it, at the end of the Civil War, and we didn't finish the job. And I think this now connects to the work I've done in the foreign policy space. It's a classic case of winning the war and losing the peace, which mm -hmm. happens all the time. It's, 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 a, it's particularly the most American way of fighting wars, uh, because by nature, we see conflict as the irregular, the exceptional. And so when we reach some point where we feel we have uh, accomplished whatever it is we think we're accomplishing, we want to move on. And this is the story of Northern Republicans uh, after the Civil War. It's not that they didn't care about enforcing the law. It's that they didn't feel they had to fight to do that anymore. And that gives an advantage to the losers on the battlefield if they continue to resist away from the battlefield. You know, uh, I had uh, a guest on my podcast a few months ago, John Avalon, um, mm. He's probably best known as a CNN commentator, um, but he wrote what I thought was a really interesting historical exploration um, called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, uh, where he tries to envision what Lincoln might have done if he had lived uh, in terms of bringing equality to the South, as well as trying to reintegrate it back into the United States. But of course, Lincoln lived merely a matter of days after Appomattox uh, and, and Lee's surrender there. Um, and so for, therefore, we can't really know what would have happened under Lincoln. But as it was, the first part of the tragedy was that Lincoln's vice president who succeeded to office was Andrew Johnson, who was almost wholly against the Lincoln vision of how to bring about peace in the Civil War. Precisely. A and he also had inordinate power. Uh, I didn't realize this, Jeff, until I did the research. I should have known this. Uh, at that time, Congress did not sit in session between April and December. And so Lincoln is, of course, assassinated in, in uh, April of 1865. Johnson takes over and is virtual dictator with full war powers <laughs> until December. And he does not share Lincoln's vision of a reformed South in any way. He accepts the end of slavery, but thinks nothing more needs to be done. He wants to protect the power of white 
not just white elites, but small scale shop owners and others. He was a tailor himself. Those who were uh, what the Germans would call the Mittelstadt, the white Mittelstadt in in the in, in the South, uh, and and perhaps most significant of all for where this goes, his vision is of locking out any of the changes that even the most moderate Republicans are seeking. And it's ironic because he is elected on what is ostensibly the Republican Party ticket. Uh, it's a real problem of succession that our system has, and uh, we then get three years of conflict between him and Congress and an effort to impeach him, which succeeds, but then the conviction fails and he remains in office. You know, my sister actually lives relatively close to where Johnson came from in Tennessee. Um, He was, I think, a tailor in Greenville, which was one of the older towns in the state. And that part of Tennessee historically was not pro-Confederacy. It's a hilly part of the state and Although there were slaves, I think Johnson owned a few. Uh, there was none of the plantation economy that existed, and you know, into, into the Civil War period uh, in the west and central parts of Tennessee. Um, so Johnson was against slavery, um, but in other respects, he was kind of a Copperhead Democrat. Really, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and and in fact, the last thing he wanted, and I don't think he's unique in thinking this way. The last thing he wanted was uh, for those who were not as wealthy as the plantation elite that he hated in places like Virginia, but those who were, again, struggling white families, the last thing he wanted was for them to be challenged by newly free black families that could operate in the same economic and social space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something that's very easy for historians looking back to say, this is what the people in power should have done. And you know, I always have been resistant to that because I think, you know, we here should not extend uh, the condescension of, of the immediate era to posterity. Um, in terms of, though, missed opportunities, do you think that Grant, in hindsight, was too lenient to Lee and his surrendering Confederate forces at Appomattox? Well, I think at Appomattox, Grant did not have much of a choice. Uh, he wanted to end the war, and he was hoping that Lee would help him. A- and if you read Grant's memoir, which is still one of the great memoirs, one of the great works of literature in American history, actually. Agreed. Um, he may, you can sense his frustration with Lee. He was expecting that Lee would, would help more. Lee, of course, lays down his arms, goes back to his farm, but Lee doesn't actually sell the peace in the South. Uh, he tells Grant uh, famously, your army will have to run over the South three times. And of course, the Union's not prepared to do that. Uh, soldiers want to go home. They want to go back to their families. I think the missed opportunity is less at Appomattox. It's in what happens in the months and years after that. The biggest missed opportunity is the prosecution of those who committed uh, treason. I, I, I don't think ordinary soldiers should have been prosecuted. But the Confederate leaders, especially some of those I profile who tried to go to Mexico and joined a foreign army and then come back. And in the case of Alexander Watkins Terrell, one of the figures I I discuss, uh, he comes back and actually writes the voting laws in Texas after joining a foreign army and seceding. Uh, I think the non-prosecution of those who broke the law in positions of high authority, uh, that that creates a space for them to continue to pursue their uh, illegal aims. Did there used to be, or is there still a building at the University of Texas named after Terrell, who was one of the regents? Uh, I believe it's still named after him, yes. Uh, how about that? You wrote that the Terrell's election laws, which uh, 
essentially restricted the primaries to only white voters have continued to have an impact uh, and a legacy in Texas in the 21st century. Absolutely. Texas is a rapidly growing state. Uh, Austin is just one example of this. But yet it's a state with very, very low turnout. And there's very low turnout because there's a long tradition of making it hard for people to vote. I'll just give you one uh, obvious example. You must register to vote in Texas one month before the election, October 11th this year. Jeff, this won't surprise you. On October 20th, every fall semester, if there's an election, I have 20 to 25 undergraduates who come to me and say they want to register to vote. And I have to tell them they can't. Now, some people will say, well, they should plan farther ahead. Uh, Do you know an 18-year-old who plans a month in advance (laughs) for anything? Uh, And this is not a mistake. Many other states run perfectly safe elections with same-day registration, day before registration. You can register. Now, you don't even have to register. When you had to register to buy a gun in Texas, you could register and get it within 24 hours. But yet, somehow, we need a month for people to be prepared to vote. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, In your book, you mentioned that 50,000 white Southerners, maybe more, went into exile uh, after the conclusion of the Civil War. And there are some, you know, in hindsight, somewhat farcical episodes, um, like Confederate officers offering their services to the Emperor Maximilian, who ruled over Mexico after his installation by France's uh, Emperor Napoleon III. It's all rather strange. Um, But, you know, what this leads up to is you're really being very critical of an episode most Americans would know nothing about, which was Andrew Johnson's Christmas Day 1868 presidential proclamation, uh, a forerunner to an executive order, in which he offered a full pardon and amnesty for all who participated directly or indirectly in the Confederacy. Uh, Absolutely. You, uh, tell me why this is so important. Well, it's, it's, it's crucial because it allows them to come back and go into office, to elected office. Uh, it violates the very intention of the Constitution, which is that if you proved yourself unwilling and unable to defend the Constitution, you should never be near public office, right? This is the oath that every military officer takes. These are the only words written into the Constitution that you must say if you are elected president, right? That you will defend the Constitution of the United States. And in a sense, our highest crime in our democracy is showing you can't, won't, and will not do that. And these men had done that. They had, in some cases, twice, three times if they went to serve for Maximilian. And, and, and then they get a clean slate. They get to come back. But of course, the former slaves don't get a clean slate. You can see their slavery in their skin. And uh, so that allows space for the bad guys to uh, do all the things that they do. It would be the equivalent is giving a blanket amnesty to all murderers and saying, okay, go back out on the street. I mean, who, who would support something like that? There's a term that isn't very often used uh, called lustration. And hmm. I'm probably going to mess this up, but I do believe it was actually used in Eastern Europe for example, after World War II, where people who had been high Nazi officials were simply not allowed back into public life. Um, And it seems that would have been the appropriate course in the United States as well. Absolutely. You do not, in a democracy, have a right to elected office. There are conditions. And I I think that would have been sufficient, and it would have made a strong moral statement. Uh, To use the example of Germany, the Germans to this day have a law against Nazis uh, in government. And I, and I think that's that's appropriate, right? There are certain lines you cross, and they're not always on the right. They might be on the left sometimes, too. But there are certain lines you don't cross for the basic rules of democracy. You know, your portrait of the early Republican Party um, is not 
wholly flattering. It, it's a mixed bag. Um, you, you write that the GOP essentially when it started was a regional organization appealing to white men in northern states um, who feared they were losing control of their lives to growing immigrant communities on the one hand and the slave owners on the other. Uh, I was fascinated by that quote you found from the night, November 1856 Springfield Republican newspaper, uh, where it said that the party appealed to the great middling interest class. They formed the very heart of the nation as opposed to the two extremes of aristocracy and ignorance. Of course, I'm always looking for anything that has to do with <laughs> moderation and the middling sorts. But, you know, the point is that these were people who were up, up and comers, often part of the professional classes, not very open, I suppose, to what we would now think of as diversity in the sense that they were very suspicious uh, of non-Protestants. And in some sense, you write, they were the mirror image of the Confederates, because in both cases, these were people who were motivated by fears of declining status. And this was sort of the motivation for the Republican Party when it started. Absolutely. And, you know, again, your podcast is so appropriately named after Arthur Schlesinger Jr., but I think one of the other figures who exerts such a positive influence on our scholarship, yours and mine, is Richard Hofstadter, of course, right? And, and Hofstadter's uh, point about status anxiety. I think, uh, it, it, you know, it was rejected by historians for a long time. I think our generation, Jeff, yours and mine, has actually brought it back uh, <laughs> to the center. I hope so, because I think it's so powerful um, for good and for bad, right? Abraham Lincoln is exactly this, right? I mean, what really bothers him about uh, the movement toward the expansion of slavery is that it jeopardizes exactly what he sees as the source of economic opportunity for men like him. White men who are poor, who have no land and have no slaves, uh, they need an opportunity. They need a space. They need a party. And he sees that voice being crowded out. The Whigs don't defend that. And, of course, the Democrats are moving to the expansion of slavery, which he feels will erode the middle. And that's why he joins and helps create the Republican Party. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, when was it? It might have been eight years ago. Um, I wrote a review in the New Republic of Heather Cox Richardson's book, To Make Men Free. And I was kind of critical about it, uh, probably more so than I would be now. Um, sorry, Heather. Apologies if you're listening. I'm in a much better headspace now than I was then. But I did think it was kind of unfair that she was saying that today's Republican Party is essentially like the antebellum Democratic Party and specific figures who uh, were representing the top 1% and believed that the rest of the population needed to be kept in subjection. I think that was going a little bit too far. But nonetheless, she's kind of true that there's been this oscillation uh, in American history, again, a kind of cyclical process, where the Republican Party starts being kind of on the side of progress um, and equality. And counter reactions happen, and it moves back toward uh, defense of of the wealthy and the establishment. And that's kind of the cycle that you're depicting in your book as well. I, I agree. And I think it's a tension within the party that's there from the start. Um, but I think, I think it's clear that at its best moments, the Republican Party is the party that is not of the super wealthy, even though sometimes they will support the Republican Party. But it's exactly of, uh, of uh, what Lincoln called the penniless beginners. Uh, I love that phrase. He uses it time and again, right? The penniless beginners who want to work hard, they don't want anything for free, but they want a chance. They want a chance. And the Republican vision, Lincoln's vision includes public universities for that re reason, right? Where any hardworking young lad can go and learn the agricultural sciences and read Shakespeare and maybe read law and move move his or her way forward. Uh, that's, that's the Republican Party at its best. And uh, 
Boy, oh boy, I, I know you share this. I, I wish the Republican Party of today would come back to that. It's such a powerful image and it needs voice in our society. Yeah, I agree. The Republican-dominated Congress, in, in a sense, went to war with President Andrew Johnson and passed uh, or, or created the reconstruction of the American South against his wishes and also against his presidential actions. Can you talk about how that happened and what the elements of reconstruction were and the ways in which the Congress actually, in a sense, took power to impose the reconstruction on the South? Well, the first thing that the um, Republican Congress, and it's, it's important to remind everyone, the Republican Congress was totally dominated by Republicans after the war. Democrats were not brought back into Congress initially, so they had two-thirds. Uh, in the Senate, which is unthinkable, right, in a, in a modern context. Uh, the first thing they did was limit the power of the Supreme Court. It's actually very interesting. They wanted to take this away from the court. The court had been very conservative and dominated by Southerners until Lincoln's presidency. The court is changed by Republicans to allow Lincoln to make more appointments. The jurisdiction has changed. At times, there are actually 10 justices under Lincoln's presidency. But then when new slots open up, Congress does not allow Johnson to appoint. So they they keep the court out of his out of his grasp, and then they pass legislation that he vetoes legislation for civil rights, legislation for enforcement. They override his vetoes, and then when he refuses to enforce through the executive branch, Congress actually stipulates that Ulysses Grant, as the commander in chief of American forces, as the as supreme commander of American armed forces, that he will implement. They create, under the Reconstruction Acts, different military districts in the South, and Grant is in charge of all the districts, and then different generals like Sheridan and Sherman are placed in charge. And quite literally, the U.S. Army, the Union Army, will go in and create its own military courts to supersede the local courts that refuse to enforce the law. So the early enforcement of uh, civil rights laws the early enforcement of even the 13th and 14th Amendment comes through the arm of military courts overseen by General Grant, uh, not by President Johnson. General Grant is reporting to Congress. This is in part why uh, Andrew Johnson wants to remove the Secretary of War. Uh, uh, Stanton, who is Secretary of War, is um, the one who Grant reports to. Johnson wants to remove the Secretary of War, so he has his own Secretary of War in there who will not enforce these laws. It's, it, it, it resonates with some recent uh, events we've struggled with. I'm guessing, though, that when you started this research, you didn't think that you would end up writing a pean to the United States Army, taking power away from the United States President to impose order and law on a part of the country. No, actually, first of all, I have to confess, I didn't understand the details of this. It gets very complicated. It's not the way we think about separation of powers, certainly. Um, but secondly, as I say in the book, it's dangerous. Um, in, in many ways, Congress is empowering the military to disobey the president. And that is a dangerous precedent. I don't think we want to fall into that. And again, I worry today that on January 6th and other days, we, we, we also re relied on perhaps a similar process. Yeah, you're right um, that Johnson was the first commander-in-chief to work against the government that he led, which is kind of yeah. fascinating, really. And I think he was explicit about that. He believed that um, he didn't have to do what Congress said he needed to do, and he actively sought to undermine Congress. I can't find a case of a prior president who did that. Andrew Jackson, of course, had his issues with Congress, but he believed, even in his worst days with Henry Clay and others, 
that he was leading the government, not that he was undermining the government. Johnson was, in a sense, trying to eliminate the deep state, even though there wasn't much of a deep state. It's also uh, interesting in your book that you use terms that today don't quite meet the same thing, which is radical Republicans and moderate Republicans. Yes. The radical Republicans in this case were the ones who wanted a thoroughgoing reconstruction of the South um, and who also generally had been on the side of abolition before the Civil War. And the moderates are moderates. They're, they're more cautious. They, they want uh, equality for African-Americans if possible, but they also don't really want a, a, another civil war. But more than that, they seem to not want to rock the boat too much. Uh, moderates don't come off all that well here. No, it's true. Uh, one figure, for example, is Lyman Trumbull, who, who is a, a, a towering figure from Illinois, in many ways a, a highly respectable figure. He's a man of unimpeachable um, integrity. He is someone who is a strong and consistent supporter of the Union cause in the war. Uh, but he does not want a great deal of federal enforcement in the South because he wants to move on from the war. And he knows his constituents, uh, especially in Illinois, have suffered greatly. And the opportunity for their growth and improvement in their lives is westward activity, not southern activity. So the, the moderates are not apologizing for the bad behavior of former Confederates, but they don't want to devote the resources and energies of the federal government to that issue when there are other issues they care more about. You wrote that to Republicans intent on expanding democracy and removing a president who defied their authority, the moderates have become apologists for the worst of white supremacy. Uh, and what the moderates really don't want to do in this situation is impeach Johnson if this means uh, replacing him with Senator Benjamin Wade, who would have been the next in line. Correct. Benjamin Wade was from Ohio. He had been governor and now he was senator and Senate uh, pro tem, which at that time meant he would take over uh, as president under the succession procedures of the time. And he was a true radical in the sense that he wanted African-Americans to be voting in the North as well as the South. It's important that the moderate Republican position was that African-Americans should vote in the South because they'd vote Republican there, but they shouldn't necessarily vote in the North because, again, these were senators elected under a system in which African-Americans couldn't vote in most Northern states. They didn't want to actually bring all those voters in. <laughs> and to make things uh, more complicated, there also were liberal Republicans there, uh, Carl Schurz kind of being a representative example, right. who during uh, the Grant presidency opposed continued federal intervention in the South. Right. The liberal Republicans were, uh, I think a better way to think of them is they're kind of really Democrats who want to renounce the negative baggage of the Democratic Party. They don't just want to end Reconstruction. They want to empower former Confederates in the South because that's the constituency they're, they're appealing to. So you might think of them even as, um, you know, Dixiecrats, as Dixiecrats move from the Democratic Party, right? right. These are Democrats who move left in a certain way. Carl Schurz is, a, is an exception, though, because he was a Republican. He was actually a supporter of Lincoln's, uh, very prominent among German immigrant groups uh, in the United States. But he was not a fan of civil rights. No, that's true. And again, this is a very suggestive parallel with, with uh, more moderate times. These Democrats who you're describing, as well as the liberal Republicans, but particularly the Southern Democrats, criticized U.S. government intervention in their region, you write, but they still wanted resources from the U.S. Treasury. They demanded extensive federal subsidies to help white communities improve their conditions. Claims about states' rights were really calls for more public resources, not less, but without federal conditions attached. Then, as now, the loudest critics of big government were often the recipients of the most benefits. Absolutely. I, I think in the, in the period that I cover in the book, in the 1870s in particular, 
there really aren't small government people. They're all for big government. They want government to do more. They want the federal government to make investment. And that makes sense to me, Jeff, because they're dealing with the aftermath of war, all the destruction. And the biggest single possible investor is the federal government. In many of these states, the federal government owns more land than anyone else. And so it's really not small government versus big government. It's government for whom. And that's how I think of our politics today, too. The 1876 presidential election was one of the most consequential in the United States history, although, again, most people would be hard-pressed to tell who was running on which side and what was at stake. But can you explain about why this election mattered so much? Absolutely. Uh, This is really the first election when you don't have a Lincoln or a Grant (laughs) running for the Republicans, right? So uh, it's sort of like when there are no more Roosevelt's (laughs) left for the Democratic Party later on. Uh, And so uh, it's a real transition. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, the really well-regarded former governor and uh, union veteran from Ohio, is is the Republican candidate. And Samuel Tilden, who's very highly regarded as governor of New York, is the Democratic candidate. Many of your listeners will probably know Tilden is the person who actually broke the back of Tammany in New York. He was the the figure who really, uh, actually not Tammany, Boss Tweed, excuse me, Boss Tweed's uh, Tammany's later. He broke the back of Boss Tweed's group in New York, and he was a real reformer of politics in New York City. Uh, But he was also very close to Democrats who were very strong in New York, who believed that they made money and that their future was hinged to the continuation of King Cotton in the South. I remind people that most of the wealth you see in New York with these beautiful late 19th century buildings, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the New York Public Library, uh, the names on those are often names of people who um, made money working with uh, the cotton and other southern uh, plantation money. They were the financiers for that in New York City. So uh, there's a strong connection to the South here. Tilden runs on basically no more union intervention in the South. Let the Southern states just go their way. Um, he doesn't want to reverse things, but he doesn't want to do anything new. Uh, and Hayes wants to gently continue the process of pursuing uh, reform and reconstruction in the South. Uh, in this election, Tilden wins the popular vote. He wins by about 300,000 to 400,000 more votes, which is a lot, actually, uh, in an electorate where I think it's 4 million who vote for Hayes, 4.5 or 4.4 million who vote for uh, Tilden. But the problem is the Electoral College. Uh, It's not clear who's won a key number of states that what we would today call battleground states um, that determine uh, who has uh, the requisite number of votes, the majority needed. Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina each report two different set of electors. And different countings produce different results uh, in those states. It depends if you throw out some ballots that you think are not appropriate, you include some. Uh, And then, of course, there's the vote denial in all of those states. Uh, Many of those states uh, have, like Florida, they have a a Republican governor who's lost this election but is still governor. (laughs) after the November uh, election. And so you have this question as to who really won the election. Tilden needs only one of those electoral votes, but all three states are certified by their Republican governors as uh, Republican states with Republican votes for Hayes. And so Hayes wins in the Electoral College, or so it seems, by one. Now, it's important to say that uh, there were legitimate claims in each of these three, three states either way. 
I repeat in the book what C. Van Woodward, the, the great historian of the South and the person who most who first really investigated this, what he concluded now 50 years ago, which I think is still right. There's no way of knowing. Uh, there's just no way of knowing. But, but this is not one side making it up. It's very important to say that. They're not pretending that there were votes that weren't there. There's a dispute over which votes counted which votes were legitimate, which ones were double votes and which ones were not, who didn't vote. It's really hard to know who won uh, in these states. So there's a serious dispute, and uh, we go until early March of uh, 1877 without a president of the United States. Inauguration Day is going to be in March, and it requires a compromise, a compromise that involves a commission, that involves Supreme Court uh, justices. In the end, it's a compromise made by uh, Southern Democrats who had some Whig connections, so we might call them moderate Southern Democrats, and some moderate Northern Republicans, especially those around Hayes, John Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman's brother and others, that the Southerners, the Democrats will recognize that Hayes has won, but in return, Hayes will provide them the support they want and will withdraw Union forces, army forces, U.S. army forces from the South. And uh, that's often treated as the end of Reconstruction. Interestingly enough, I had forgotten this, but the House of Representatives, controlled by Democrats, passed a resolution after the election denying that Hayes was elected to the office that he held. They aren't denying that he holds the office, but they are denying that he was elected to that office. And they called him repeatedly his fraudulency. (laughs) Good term. (laughs) Um, And they were extremely uh, recalcitrant in their dealings with him. And uh, you ask on their behalf, how could Democrats reconcile with someone they believed stole power from them? Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the problem. And Hayes never really gets gets through that. He tries to reach out and do what we would want him to do to build bridges. But there's no there's no way really to do that. And repeatedly, um, there are efforts to what we would today call shut down the government, to uh, not pass basic appropriations bills, to try to uh, harm his agenda, to prevent him from moving forward. That is eventually how we get the Posse Comitatus Act, right, which is actually forced upon him as part of a military appropriations bill. The Posse Comitatus Act is a pledge not to use the U.S. Army to enforce the law in the United States, just as they wanted. So Hayes has a terrible time. And the thing Hayes doesn't do, because it's not his skill set, is try to find some way to appeal over their heads, right? He's not very good at that. And so he becomes a prisoner of uh, congressional um, opposition. And the fate of his successor, James Garfield, is in some ways worse. Garfield is the last Republican to really try to uh, bring equality to the races uh, in the South. And he's shot by a disgruntled office seeker uh, on a totally different issue, which eventually in the next administration leads to civil service reform. But you write that his death really marked the end of Republican efforts to build an inclusive multiracial democracy in America. That's right, because after uh, Garfield, who, by the way, was really trying, and we have no idea what he would have done. He never really got beyond the problems of trying to appoint people to office and was killed uh, or shot and then had this long, terrible ordeal where he finally uh, dies after being, quite frankly, mistreated uh, by his doctor. Yes, there's Uh, actually a a little uh, note there on the side of meritocracy, because Garfield was treated by the best connected doctors, not necessarily the most skilled or knowledgeable 
that that's my argument. Yes, if you look at it, he's treated by the most respected doctors coming out of the Civil War, but there were uh, many young doctors in the United States who understood germ theory. The problem for Garfield is when he shot uh, in Washington, D.C. before he boards a train, multiple doctors stick their hands into the wound to try to pull the bullet out, and he actually dies of the infections from these dirty hands in a train station going into his body. That's a long infection and death, and he's mistreated repeatedly and misdiagnosed. But younger doctors who had less status but had been educated in germ theory, which was pioneered in Europe, knew exactly what was going on and tried to tell his doctor who refused to listen. Um, So it's a terrible tragedy. But he was the last president to really try to deal with these issues. He's replaced uh, by Chester Arthur, who had no business. Uh, Chester Arthur was a former collector of the New York Custom House. He was only put on the ballot. As a, as a gift to an, an attempt to appease the New York faction of the Republican Party that didn't like uh, Garfield, another Ohio Republican. And uh, Chester Arthur is sick himself, unable to do much. And then we get Grover Cleveland, but the first Democratic president elected since the Civil War uh, thereafter. And, and, and the country, the executive, turns away from these issues. In essence, the um, Democratic local governments in the South that are pursuing what will soon become called Jim Crow, they're they're just not paid attention to by the federal government anymore. A lot of things come through in this account, um, one of which is that there are always going to be forces in this country that will try to seek to suppress their opponents' voters. And they will do this in the name of democracy. Uh, Humans are capable of almost any rationalization. And the claims of electoral fraud will be raised uh, whenever it is felt that too many of the wrong kind of people are voting. Absolutely. I think that's as, unfortunately, as uh, American as apple pie. And uh, we need to be attentive to that. And that is why we need institutions that can, with legitimacy, make claims to uh, as to what is uh, a fair election and, and what isn't. Uh, we all know our elections are actually quite fair now. But we don't have, uh, with the collapse of any kind of mainstream news, we don't have an authoritative uh, way of affirming that. And I'd like to see us develop more of that work toward that, perhaps what many other countries have, a federal election agency that really does this work. I have to admit, I did not think that in my lifetime, I would see a return of an endemic problem in this period, which is violence used to intimidate uh, at the ballot box and in the process of politics more generally, as well as an attempt to manipulate the outcomes of elections by determining what folks got counted rather than what, what votes were cast. Yes, and, and I, I, I agree with you. I did not predict that even five years ago. And it's stunning, but I think one of the values of this project, one of the values of this book is showing us the roots of this, because I think many of these techniques were developed after the Civil War. Again, the point that needs to be made, when the people you wanted to exclude were already excluded because they were slaves, you didn't have to do this. Once they had claims on power, then you had to find new ways to keep them out of power. And bullying was certainly one of them, paramilitary violence. Uh, And I think what the book shows is that paramilitary violence is often highly organized. It looks unorganized, but it's it's often highly organized. We're learning about that in in our own time now. And actually, it succeeds on a surprising number of occasions as well. It does. Bullying works. That's why it's probably the the oldest form of political coercion is, is to bully people, you know, the leader of Russia is trying to do that with the rest of the world right now. Um, 
it, it, it works, it shapes how people think, it frightens people, and those who are newly uh, part of a democracy, either immigrants, uh, minorities, others, they are most susceptible to that, of course. And of course, what we saw in 2020 uh, and its aftermath, especially, was that um, the American democratic and constitutional structure is actually quite rickety. It's built on all kinds of unworkable arrangements. Uh, it really lacks clarity. There is no uniformity in many of its processes. And the fact that we are now trying to bring clarity to the Electoral Count Act of 1887 uh, suggests something about the work that needs to be done to actually reform our constitutional system. Absolutely. And again, you know, I'm a Burkean, as I think you are too. And uh, my view is that what Burke taught us is rapid uh, breakneck change is dangerous, but also status quo commitments are dangerous as well, right? You need slow evolving institutions. That's the Burkean wisdom, which I think is what our founders uh, had as well, and uh, even though some of them had, you know, preceded Burke, nonetheless, this notion that you would have a slowly evolving set of institutions, and we have not participated in that process. We have not encouraged that process in at least a generation or two. Well, some of this happens after World War II. You've written about this, and then a lot of it, it it gets stymied, and we need that now. Again, I'm not arguing for overturning, rewriting. I'm not for a new constitutional convention. I'm not for any of that. But I am for looking long and hard at some of the key pillars, those rickety pillars, as you put it, and finding ways to reinforce them. And reforming the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is a good place to start. So you, um, late in the book, write a sentence that I think I would have objected to if it had come at the beginning of the book. But by the end of the book, I felt like it was earned. And you write, uh, Black Lives Matter is the 21st century echo of the Union Leagues, the Freedmen's Bureau, and African-American Republican organizations across the old Confederacy. Donald Trump and QAnon are 21st century replays of Andrew Johnson and the Ku Klux Klan. Red hats this time, born of older white hoods. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are going to object to that, but I think what you're saying is not literally that Donald Trump and QAnon are Andrew Johnson and the Ku Klux Klan, but then again, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Precisely, that, that we're seeing a similar divide. And this is not to say that everything Black Lives Matter does or advocates for is correct, in my view. But it is to say that it's an effort to organize those who feel themselves more and more being excluded from participation in our democracy in the ways in which union leagues and others did that. And it is to say that on the other side, there is a deployment, a weaponization of these anti-democratic racist elements of our democracy which are not the whole democracy at all, but they're being weaponized and deployed to exclude certain people, even to exclude people who were formerly Republicans in the case of Trump and QAnon themselves. People like you, Jeff, right? I mean, that's that's part of what's being done. And so it's a weaponization of our history. And, and I think that's why we study history most of all. It's not that, you know, studying history, you and I are wiser and can make better policy. I wish that were true. I don't think it's true. But I think it's that we can see the flaws and as patriots, we can try to work to change those flaws in the design structure of our, of our constitutional house. So you conclude your book with five major proposals, so to speak, uh, to try to redress some of these flaws. And the first of it is that we need uh, a very ambitious change to voting. Yes. I think we need a constitutional amendment that every citizen above the age of 18, if we wanted to start there. My son would say it should be above the age of 16. It's another story. <laughs> Has a right to vote. And it should be like free speech. I'm a near absolutist on free speech. 
and my view is it's appropriate, it's one of the best things in our democracy, that there's a presumption against any censorship. If you want to censor someone's speech in this country, you've got to work really hard to prove you have a legal reason to do that. It should be the same thing for voting. And most democracies have that. We have the opposite now. Voting is in the hands of states, and states can create all kinds of reasons. By the way, not only Republicans do that, now Democrats do too. New York City, New York State, I know this from having grown up there, does all kinds of things to make it hard for certain people to vote, just as Texas makes it hard. Uh, We need a constitutional right to vote, just like our right to free speech. Um, Your second proposal is for major changes in elections and our election system. Right. I mean, the Electoral College is just part of this right now. And and of course, all your listeners are familiar with the problems with Electoral College that obviously go back to 1876. They go back to 1800, of course, with Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Uh, But they're particularly bad now because of the disparity between a Wyoming and a California or Texas. Uh, and, And what it means is that we get someone selected as president who doesn't really represent the country as a whole. Uh, this has happened right four of the last six times uh, in in our presidential elections. This is a real problem, and that person then gets to choose Supreme Court justices and all these other all these other things. And and our elections are hard to follow. Our elections are messy. We have questions as to who is certifying. We have volunteers doing a lot of the work who are now being intimidated. Uh, I think we need to invest in running professional elections with a professional group of people with professional regulations from the federal government. Many other societies do this. India, for example, has a very highly regarded, as politicized as India is, it's at least as politicized as the US, they have a very highly regarded central election agency. I think we should have that. You uh, believe that there need to be changes in representation as well. Right. This is the point about gerrymandering. Uh, This is the point about having citizens choose their leaders rather than leaders choose their citizens. And a lot has been written on this. I I recapitulate a little bit of it in the book. But uh, gerrymandering is as old as our republic, uh, but it's gotten so much worse on both sides because of technology and because of the inspiration that comes from after the Civil War, when this becomes a norm, a way of thinking about politics. We need to reverse that. I think we should have nonpartisan as some states do, um, panels created to try to create the most fair districts with the most diversity. Uh, we, should, we should have as many 5149 districts as possible. Uh, you write that uh, there needs to be a change to the process of presidential succession. Right. Well, this is something I came to entirely from the research, Jeff, and I don't know anyone else who's argued this, so I might be completely off base, but it strikes me when we get to Lincoln's presidency, The United States had not had a presidential assassination. It's one of the reasons it's so easy for Booth to do this. Lincoln, just as violent as the Civil War was, he didn't think anyone would try to kill the president. And then from Lincoln's assassination in 1865 to 1901, 35, 36 years, we have three presidential assassinations. And the first two are terrible successions. Two people completely unprepared, unsuited for the office. Congress is not available to help. I mean, it's just... Uh, it's a real problem, and they, they both succeed early in the term, so they get three-plus years. I believe we should have a system where the vice president takes over, but then in the next election year, so if it's uh, the first year of the presidency, the end of the second year, there's, a, there's an early election. Because the problem really is Johnson and Arthur are in office far too long. No one's ever elected them, and there's really no way to remove them. The impeachment process is broken. We will. I, I can't imagine a time anytime soon we will remove a president 
through impeachment and conviction. So if someone is there illegitimately, either because of a resignation or a death or, you know, God forbid, a mental issue, which could happen, then there should be a, a way to have an election sooner rather than later. And finally, you feel that there needs to be some kind of new appeal to hearts and minds. Yes, and this is you know making a case for historians, making a case for you and me, <laughs> Jeff. Every one of our books ends that way, right? I mean, look, we we we're, and this is true for most historians, but at least for you and me, I mean, we, we're patriots who love our country. We love our country, and we love our country so much that we want our country to see how it can be better. And you only get better by, of course, teaching the great things you've done, but also studying the, the limitations, the places you've been off base. And, and we have to use that to persuade people in an idealistic way we can be better, not to try to cover up uh, these issues. And, and I think that can be appealing. I think that's actually what students want. They don't want people who hate their country, but they want people who love their country and want to make it better. And we can all be part of that. Uh, I, I, you know, now I'm going to get a little hokey, but I think that's actually what motivates immigrants who come to a country mistreated, but yet go and fight for that country because they believe in its possibility of being better for them after the war. And it certainly was for my Jewish relatives who were in a very anti-Semitic America before World War II. It's not that anti-Semitism went away, but their work in World War II helped to expose and improve not just countries abroad, but at home when they came back. And we had some long, hard thinking as Americans about our own anti-Semitic um, history, and we're a different country. Our universities are different as a, con as, as a concept, right? I mean, Yale would not have had Jew more than a handful of Jews right before World War II, and it becomes an institution that in many ways is open to some of the greatest Jewish talent thereafter. It is. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, including many that I don't agree with at all. Um, and occasionally I listen to a podcast by your University of Texas colleague, Peniel Joseph, um, who's also written a book recently called uh, The Third Reconstruction. Yes. Don't believe that Black Lives Matter amounted to a third reconstruction. Um, and I don't believe that the Republican legislative attempts to dictate what goes on in terms of discussion over critical racial theory and other racial concepts amounts to a ban on teaching about black history. But I do agree that there are real debates that are going on over the teaching of history that often fail to find the middle ground. Uh, another podcast that I want to represent to uh, to recommend to one and all is your podcast with Jill Lepore. And she made what I thought was such an interesting comment, um, which is that, you know, America's history contains atrocities. And it also contains moments of real inspiration and glory. And yet to actually say that as a historian is to say on the one hand, on the other hand, and that's a kind of despised moderation. Uh, which is being squeezed out of our politics, and also, she thinks, and I agree, out of our teaching and out of the academy. So, you know, here's the question, like, how do you actually teach in, in a way that actually allows Americans to come to term with their past as aspiring but imperfect, as you write, an aspiring but imperfect democracy? I, I was just going to say, Jeff, I think I think you're spot on, and I think Jill did say this very well on, on our podcast. I was kind of surprised, actually. Uh, here's what I think. I think we need those who are fortunate enough to be in positions of respectability, those who get to write as you do, right? Those who get to be scribblers as you and I do, to be advocating for this and to be modeling this. I think one of the reasons our history teaching has become so narrow is not just because of the political pressure, but people don't know better. They don't have other models. And I've always tried to teach in the way we've described. I don't know if I've always done it well, but I, I rarely have students who don't want that. 
you know, uh, there are always some students complaining about something, but in as a whole, I think this is why I think it's hearts and minds. That's a compelling story because most people can see the the beauty and possibility of our country and also its severe limitations. And and so I want to model that. I think we need more people modeling that is, I guess, what I'm saying. You know, you and I talked uh, more than a year ago as you were writing uh, a long piece that was published as uh, How Elite Universities Have Promoted Destructive Republican Leaders. Yes. Uh, and I've thought about that piece a lot. Uh because recently I've actually tried writing about uh, Ron DeSantis. Oh. And I think, I think that I actually had Ron DeSantis in some sections that I taught. He wasn't enrolled in my actual sections, but I would take over for some uh, graduate students who didn't want to teach the evening sections. And those are the ones that were full of athletes because, of course, they were practicing uh, during the daytime. And you know, there were some real tensions even then between the grad students who leaned pretty far left and the athletes who didn't, but I think it was actually more than just political disagreements. Um, it was also that a lot of the athletes were like DeSantis from working class or lower middle class backgrounds yeah. and kind of traditional public education or Catholic parochial education. And they felt looked down on by their wealthier classmates as well as by the grad students and, and the faculty to some extent. They were really kind of alienated yet privileged young men by virtue of the education and the credentialing that they were getting. And you wrote about people who were like that, uh, who are now uh, sort of populist leaders in the Republican Party. And you specifically had in mind people like uh, Ted Cruz and uh, Josh Hawley. And of course, one could add to that list, uh, Elise Stefanik or Tom Cotton. You know, these are all up and comers in the Republican Party, and yet they have these sort of elite educational backgrounds. And you know, you kind of write that essentially they were just using these universities as networking opportunities and, and sort of credentialing factories. And, and I think that's true. Um, but I also think there's some resentments that they still carry against um, the elite class. And, and I think this is part of what makes them populist warriors and maybe a little dangerous. And this is a perspective that they bring to the teaching of race and our racial history in the classroom. So Ron DeSantis, you know, has passed the Stop Woke Act which hasn't yet found its test in reality in terms of what teachers can and can't teach. But this theoretically, at least, will also extend to the teaching of American history as well as race at the university level sure. in the public university system. Sure. And what happens in Florida uh, tends to happen in Texas. So this is going to come to visit your doorstep. And I just um, wonder what your perspective is on all of this. It's a great question. Uh, you know, back to the your really thoughtful reflections on on the university element of this. Uh, I, I I'm sure they pick up some resentments uh, for being different. I'm sure DeSantis felt that way at Yale. I can see that. At times, I felt a little bit that way at Stanford, also as the you know child of immigrants from a working class background, and everyone in my dorm, you know, was driving a BMW. I couldn't afford even to get a driver's license in New York, you know. I mean, there. So I certainly felt some of that. But what's striking to me is, is in the case of a Josh Hawley, uh, a Ted Cruz, how they use their elite education to boost themselves. Let me parenthetically add here that one of Josh Hawley's mentors and great assists, particularly in getting his Theodore Roosevelt biography published, was David Kennedy. Correct. And, uh, I, and, and I feel like Josh and I have been in many of the same places. He's just a, f a few years younger than I am. He, was, he had the same advisor at Stanford, and then he was at Yale when we were at Yale also. And so they use these institutions, and these institutions use them, I think, actually, to, to succeed, to boost, to get ahead. 
And and really what I'm concerned with is not just the resentment they have. Why haven't these institutions been better at teaching ethics and a sense of public service, true public service? That's what they're about. That's what they should be about. I, I think we value and we should take ownership of this as universities are being too much about success and not about bettering society. And that's kind of my answer to the other part of your question. You know, I... I I do see wokeness, of course, at universities and things like that. But I actually think the problem is we're too pre-professional. I think if we want to really go after uh, higher ed, I'm going to go the Alan Bloom route and say the problem is the closing of the American mind from the closing of actual deep inquiry and the emphasis upon professionalization. Um, The most popular majors across private and public universities now are majors like business and economics. and, and, And that's fine if that's really what people are interested in, but I'm not sure that's why. Uh, Yale history had been the queen discipline for so long, and it's not because you don't have great teaching of history there. It's because of the pre-professional interests that many, many students uh, have. I think that the Stop Woke Teaching Act and things like that, I think they're actually terribly counterproductive. They will be difficult for myself and other teachers to deal with. Um, but what they actually do is they make those subjects more interesting for students, right? The I mean, lure of the forbidden. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, right, uh, it would be a boon for you or for me if Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis uh, condemned one of our books. Uh, please do, <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I think uh, I think what we have to worry about more than anything else is not the the efforts to politicize these issues by politicians. It's actually getting the best teachers in the classroom prepared with the best modeling. I do a lot of work with high school teachers, and I try to model for them and help them think about what is the way to do just what you and I are talking about. How can we teach? Uh, the, the glorious cause of the Union Army in the Civil War and the horrors of what also occurred at the same time. I would give the next to last word to Carl Schurz, since we mentioned him not so positively earlier. Uh, he's well known, of course, for that saying, uh, my country, right or wrong, if right to be kept right, and if wrong to be set right. Correct. Um, right. And at the end of your book, you say that the reckoning that we need requires a willingness to learn more openly about our history, identify our inherited flaws, and work to repair them. Yes, I believe that. And that comes out of the Jewish tradition, if I might say, Lador Vador, you know, which is that from generation to generation, we want to leave things a little bit better. And how do we leave things a little bit better? We try to figure out where there are places. Uh, this is what every Jewish family talks about just this time of year, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. What are the things we can do just a little bit better so that the next generation can live just a little bit better? Well, Jeremy Suri, uh Gimar Chatimatova, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations to you on Civil War by Other Means. Jeff, thank you. This was a, a wonderful conversation, and I love your podcast. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Jeremy. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center Podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating, or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Engineering, and the Scannon Center in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm.